This is episode 116 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this episode, we're talking with photographer Justin Sneed, who's joining us from the Midwest. Now, Justin and I connected, and after seeing a lot of his storm photography and knowing that I wanted to have him on the podcast, we finally sat down and had a lengthy discussion. You know, Justin and I had talked back and forth, but I'd never really heard about his full story in photography. And we get into some really interesting topics in this podcast. You know, we go from nerdy weather predictions and storm photography all the way through to doing something for the love of a person versus a love of a passion. And I think that was a really strong conversation that Justin and I had that you could actually hear a lot of the emotion in his voice about what he was talking about. So you're going to get a lot out of this episode, and I'm really excited for you to learn more about Justin. Be sure, as always, if you like this person, if you like Justin, what he has to say, Go ahead and check him out on the show notes for today. You can find those at davidjohnstonart.com. And you can click over and visit his page. You can follow him. You can support him. Please support all the photographers that we have on the podcast. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Justin Sneed. Justin, joining us from the Midwest today. Justin, first of all, coming off a shift uh, at a hospital, I know... You work in the medical field uh, as well as a storm photographer. Why don't you give us a synopsis of kind of what's going on in the in the medical field right now and, and why you're still employed with the medical field? Because honestly, you're a great photographer. Well, first off, David, I want to thank you for inviting me to join your uh, podcast. It's an absolute honor. Uh, as far as the healthcare field is concerned, it's it's a pretty interesting dynamic right now. We're kind of in a position where there are people who are retiring, um, mainly because they're, they were burned out from the past two years of COVID. Uh, you also have people who are, uh, you know, they're retiring because they do not want to get the vaccine that's been mandated by most hospital corporations. And now you have a dilemma where there's not enough nurses coming out of school to supply some of these hospitals. Um, and it's just becoming really, really hard with nurses actually getting sick, uh, healthcare providers just in general actually getting sick. So as far as where things are going to go with COVID and with nurses being in hospitals within the next two years, it's going to be really interesting to see what the United States as a whole does because we're, we're getting into a real deficit. Um, I think I saw a stat that said something about, I think, 10% of uh, of some of the hospitals are, or 10% of the hospitals have, like, really bad shortages, hospital shortages. So it'll be interesting to see where things go with that. Why are you still working there? Uh, honestly, last year I got really burned out with COVID. Um, it's been pretty easy on me because I work in the OR and we're not directly affected unless somebody gets uh, sick with COVID. Um, so when that happened, you know, obviously our workload got to be harder. Uh, we also had cases where the hospital were just was just completely full. So we'd have to work double shifts and we'd have to actually switch over from the operating room to, you know, whether or not it's going to med surge or helping in the ER or uh, the psych ward and, uh, Honestly, it was just really, really hard last year. So this year, or this past year, I decided to take a break. And after, you know, storm chasing and taking a little bit of a break, I decided it was time to time to go back and just try to help people out. And I've actually come back to a hospital that I've worked at previously uh, during my travel career. And just seeing them be so short-staffed, uh, like every day my phone goes off and they're asking for people to come in and, help with this or that or can you come and replace somebody because somebody's gotten COVID and they can't come in um 
it's been it's been an honor just helping some of these towns in the Midwest who honestly they wouldn't have uh, just the staff to come and help take care of some of these patients. Um, it's just it's really heartbreaking when you see what goes on in some of these smaller towns in the Midwest. Well, first of all, as a follow up, thank you for doing what you're doing, taking care of people, putting your own health on the line and also taking on that mental load. I know you talked about burnout. It, it cannot be easy to go in there and do that. Um, and, and second of all, in terms of the healthcare field, uh, you're a traveling nurse, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a traveling nurse. I've been doing that for about six years now, I think. Has that gone going back to that? Has that kind of refreshed you or revitalized you in a way? You know what? It, it honestly has. Um, before I started traveling, I, uh, I guess I should back all the way up. I was born and raised in South Carolina, uh, rural South Carolina at that probably one of the poorest counties within that state. So there just, there wasn't a lot of growth going on there. Um, and within that County, it just, you know, creativity was, was kind of squashed when you have poverty around and, uh, People, people just don't know where to go for creative uh, outlooks. Um, so when I decided to actually start traveling, uh, photography was not like it was the furthest thing away as far as like what I was thinking of doing with my life. Uh, you know, as far as I was concerned, I was uh, concerned with a trying to find a job to help care of my uh, help take care of my mother who has uh, some mental issues and just being able to actually do travel nursing, which helped with my bills. Um, that was just a tremendous thing for me. The, the idea of being able to go and visit the visit throughout the United States was daunting, but at the same time, it was kind of that within itself was refreshing for life because without that, I probably would still be in South Carolina at the same hospital, uh, still just not knowing anything about the United States as a whole. How did you become a photographer though? Uh, let's see. So it's kind of funny because everybody knows me for my storm photography, but originally when I first got into it, it was because of a good friend of mine, Matt Blue Jay. He's a uh, photographer in Jacksonville, Florida. And we actually met because of, uh, being at the same rock concert in Jacksonville. Uh, he was doing some uh, concert photography and um, I happened to like talk to him a bit and I wanted to, to see what his prints were going to look like from this uh, concert. The band name was Cold. I don't know if you heard of that band or not, but uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, we were sitting there talking and a uh, couple of, I think it was like two or three weeks later, I uh, had to go back down to Jacksonville and he had a couple of prints made up. So I went by and I checked out the print and um, I just fell in love with like the way that he captured uh, Scooter Ward's essence on stage. Like the photo itself was just so powerful. And I was like, man, like I really want to do concert photography. <laughs> so probably a couple of weeks went by and I started doing some research and I uh, ended up picking up, a, I think it was like a Nikon D5200 and just kind of started diving into it from there. But originally I wanted to be a concert photographer, which is pretty insane. Now that when I, now that I look at what I'm doing, which is, you know, obviously storm photography, chasing, you know, these storms that can produce tornadoes, large hail, you know, damaging winds. And, um, to look back now and realize that, you know, Hey, you wanted to just shoot some grungy guys and get gals up on stage, you know, because I'm a rock fan. It's, it's pretty surreal. It's, it's interesting. Where, where do you think that link came from though? Like going from being interested in concert photography and then like you're now known for your storms. When did that love and passion for storms start? So when I first picked up my camera, I want to say it was in the year 2016. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was interested in concert photography, but I, I quickly learned that that was not going to be my passion. Um, Concert photography in and of itself is very hard to get into because you, when you're starting at the bottom, you're literally starting at the bottom. Um, you're having to go to 
very, very small venues with bands that nobody knows. And you have to slowly start building up that portfolio. And it takes years to go just from, you know, kind of like dive bar situations up to, you know, the medium scale concerts and, you know, being able to photograph, you know, smaller tiered bands and, you know, then progress on and on and on up to, you know, large bands are going to festivals and being able to shoot that. It, it takes years. And I just decided to myself, you know, I'm not going to be able to do that, not with my work schedule and, you know, just having the time to be able to take off and go to various bars, um, especially while I'm traveling, it's going to be pretty hard. So, so I decided to, you know, cancel that idea. And I just started trying to get into general landscape photography. And, and I kind of realized, you know, it was nice shooting it. And every once in a while, you know, I get a shot that I was really proud of, but I didn't, I didn't feel anything in my soul as far as shooting it. Um, so I kind of left from Des Moines, Iowa, which is, kind of where I picked up my camera at. And I went to Wyoming for a year. Um, it's a small town called Afton, Wyoming. That's about an hour south of the Grand Tetons. Um, obviously, for a landscape photographer, that's kind of a, a golden spot. You have, you know, obviously the Tetons, you have Yellowstone, you have uh, Green River Lakes, which is kind of a, it's kind of hidden, but most people are starting to, more people are starting to get to know about it in Wyoming. Um, so you have a mecca of, you know, general landscape, astrophotography, wildlife in Wyoming. Um, so I really kind of spent time in the backcountry of Wyoming, you know, just trying to do some everything, you know, trying to do some landscape photography, trying to do wildlife photography. Uh, I tried to dabble into astrophotography and, you know, all of those things were nice. It was, it was great being able to, you know, for example, one day, actually got to see a couple of wolves cross my path about not even 25 yards out. And, mm. you know, to be able to say, you know, Hey, I had two wolves literally go across the road and stare at me from about 20 to 25 yards out is pretty insane. Not a lot of people get to say that. Um, another thing that happened was I was hiking along the snake river and I was looking for bears. And uh, just as I was about to, crest this little hill and start to go back down uh right on the trail it's literally a bear that's five yards away from me <laughs> and i'm sitting there and i got my camera in one hand i have my bear spray in the other hand and i'm just scared to death and this bear is just looking at me and then it crawls it decides to climb up a tree and eat some berries and you know that, that was a very special moment but at the same time it didn't again it just didn't feel right in my soul you know it didn't feel like this was the genre of photography I wanted to shoot. So fast forward and I'm in Minnesota working a contract at the hospital that I'm at now, which is New Orleans, Minnesota. Uh, I'm coming back home uh, from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and I happen to see this cloud off in the distance. And I'm like, huh, what is that? Um, so I'm just driving closer to it. And as I get closer to it, I kind of noticed that it's got like this big lowering under it and it just kind of, it piqued my curiosity. So I pulled off on a ramp, uh, just kind of sat there and watched it. And, you know, I started shooting it and, you know, kind of in just in my spirit, it just felt like, man, this is like awesome. You know, like I've never seen a cloud like this. Um, at that time, my phone started to go off and become tornado warned and, I was just like, wow, like <laughs> this is something, but I had no idea of what it was. So I ended up uh, teaming up with a buddy of mine who uh, his girlfriend I had worked with at a hospital in South Carolina when I very first got out of school. Um, and he's a weather guy out of South Carolina. His name's Chris Jackson. And he had me drive from Minnesota to Wichita, Kansas, which is probably you know, six or seven hours. And then we literally storm chased from Wichita, Kansas, all the way into the corner, northwest corner of New Mexico, through the Texas panhandle and back within a day. And we didn't see anything. But at that point, I was just absolutely hooked on the actual thrill of storm chasing, let alone the photography part, because I hadn't, 
I hadn't truly seen like an epic supercell yet, but just the actual thrill of going out on the chase, uh, seeing how they were trying to forecast things and, you know, being able to actually look at models and try to predict where storms are going to happen was, was all very interesting to me. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him, uh, you know, a being uh, willing to, to let me go out and chase with them, but B also being a mentor afterwards and kind of teaching me some of the very basics of storm chasing. When, when somebody comes to you, who's like, Hey, I want to do what you do. Um, do you often refer back to that story? Because for, for me, at least it seems like a lot of people come on the show and they say, I spent my entire childhood outside. I love to hike. I love to camp. Uh, landscape photography just fit. But you went down this zigzagging path of trying to find the right fit for your photography until you found what made your heart sing pretty much. Is that advice that you give out to people who come to you? It is now. I uh, Usually when people reach out to me in regards to wanting to get into photography, it's now on the basis of, hey, I want to learn how to storm chase. So I always give them the advice of, A, storm chasing is an expensive hobby because you're going to pay gas to get to wherever you're going, which that might be Texas, that might be Montana, North Dakota, Colorado, Wyoming. So you're automatically going to be paying, you know, $100 to $200 in gas, wherever you're driving from. Uh, then you have your hotel expenses. You also have your initial cost of, you know, setting up your laptop and your car, uh, buying buying emergency supplies because you never know when you're going to get stuck in an area that has no cell phone service. Um, and then you've got the price of time, which is learning how to forecast. And that's something that takes a couple of years to really kind of get to get like just batten down. Um, and then not only that, but learning how to chase effectively and safely is a huge, huge thing within the storm chasing community in general. And, um, I highly advise people when they do reach out to me to try to find somebody who's going to be willing to bring them out, who's experienced, because doing so by yourself can be very detrimental to not only your safety, but uh, other storm chasers safety and to to first responders who you may get you know stuck in an air position where you where you get hurt. And now you have first responders who are having to go out there and also brave the elements potentially. That's really good advice for first and foremost. I, I really want to like get in your shoes though and figure out like this could get really nerdy really fast. And I think <laughs> that could be fun uh, for me because I actually thought about being a meteorologist for a profession um, when I was in college. It, it When you're looking to go for a chase, like what are the key elements in the weather? And, and number two, how are you looking those up and, and watching for them. Yeah. So for me, I, I just want to start off with, uh, I was never, I was never interested in becoming a meteorologist. Uh, <laughs> when I initially saw that cloud, you know, in Minnesota that got me into it, I was, you know, I was interested in it. But once, once I saw like some of the math equations that meteorologists have to, to do while they're in school, I'm like, yeah, no, this just isn't for me. Uh, my buddy Chris Same. is in school for it, and I was just like, "There is no way in hell that I'm going to be going to be going back to school to become a meteorologist." So That's I exactly kind of asked why that. I went the opposite direction too. Yeah, I asked that pretty quick. Uh, as far as what we're looking for, um, typically what I do is uh, SPC, which is the Storm Prediction Center. They always put out uh, three day outlooks, and then they put out an extended outlook that'll extend through days four through eight. Um, and what SPC does is they kind of give a, give a general outlook as to where they think severe weather will be within the United States. Um, now that's one way that you can do it. Another way that people, once you start getting into forecasting and knowing what to look for, you'll start looking at models that are on pivotal weather. So on this website, you'll have different ensembles that range from long range to medium range to short range. 
and they kind of give you an idea of what the weather patterns are going to look like. So a lot of people will start to look for consistencies within that pattern. Um, you know, do you think there's going to be a low that's going to be ejecting from the Rockies into the plains at this time? Is it showing that it's going to be, is, are the models showing consistency within the timing of that low ejecting? Because timing is a very important aspect of storm chasing. Um, another thing that I'll start looking for as well is uh, there's a couple of things. So we're looking for, <clears throat> For instability in the atmosphere, which is basically you have, let's let's say you have a crock pot, for example, or just a pot in general with water in it, and that pot has a lid on it. Our atmosphere works the same way in that sometimes we have a lid over the top of, of the atmosphere, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if it will, but... Uh, and uh, basically what we're looking for is we're looking for warm air coupled with moisture to basically create instability in the atmosphere. We, we essentially want the atmosphere to be boiling like, like a pot of water. And what happens when you're boiling a pot of water and that water is at the very top and it just blows off your, your cap? Um, so that's kind of what we're looking for. We're kind of looking for this pressure cooker type of setting where you get enough moisture from the Gulf of Mexico to come up into either the southeast or into the plains. You're also looking for wind shear, which is what's going to help your storms actually rotate. Um, you're looking for lifting mechanisms, which can be anything from a dry line, which is a, a sharp gradient of moisture and no moisture. Uh, cold fronts, warm fronts, um, and then obviously your low, which is helping to bring in that moisture up into the plains or the southeast or wherever you're expecting that uh, severe weather. So there's multiple things that we're looking for, and we're trying to time up and see if they're going to have, if they're going to all bring these ingredients together at the right time for you to be able to chase. It makes sense. I got a little bit distracted when you started talking about a crock pot. And <laughs> I mean, I'm going like now I'm hungry for like a low country, like shrimp okra stew. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that's good. I forgot you're a Southern guy. Oh, man. I could eat that like every single week. Oh, man. I was at home and uh, a couple of weeks ago and I had a uh, seafood boil one of those like seafood boil bags and i was just like oh my god just everything was good the crab legs the shrimp ah there's nothing like it i do digress though um <laughs> <laughs> i hear you talking about like geographical features um rocky mountains gulf of mexico how much are those features actually impacting the weather that you're looking at before you go out and storm chase so the Rockies play a real pivotal part in creating certain conditions for severe weather to happen within Colorado. Um, there's kind of this feature where air is able to get funneled into certain portions of the Rockies, and it kind of creates, helps create lift and helps to create these, these low pressure systems that end up ejecting out into the plains. And they really help with but creating lift for storms to develop in areas that otherwise they wouldn't develop. So a lot of people look at Colorado and they think, you know, obviously you think the Rockies, you're thinking snow, you know, you're thinking skiing, but on the Eastern side of the whole state of Colorado is, it's just nothing but plains. It's just like you're living in Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, you know, there's nothing but fields and fields of grass, fields of wheat, whatever. And oftentimes what will happen is we'll have these low pressure systems eject off of the Rockies and come out into the plains of Colorado where we'll end up getting some moisture from the Gulf of Mexico again. And you're able to get these severe weather systems that oftentimes start in Colorado and they'll end up coming into Kansas. And, you know, people always think of tornadoes in Kansas and, you know, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, those are like the really big areas that a majority of people think tornadoes can happen, but they also happen in Colorado. Um, as a matter of fact, Colorado is, I 
think, if I'm not mistaken, they're the they're the they're the highest. I'm trying to figure out a way to word this. Uh, as terms of hail damage, they're like the highest state um, mm-hmm. in terms of like hail damage claims because they oftentimes get very large hail there. And oftentimes it can happen just over the city of Denver as the, the storm systems are coming out into the plains. In terms of, you mentioned, you know, not really knowing where you're going to wind up when you go storm chasing. Um, I'm thinking about when you go out and you're experiencing these storms and you're just chasing all day long, adrenaline has the ability to build up in you, um, the unpredictability of where you're going to end up. How heavy is the mental load for you when you are going out to storm chase? And and is there a point of like completely like offloading and, and what does that look like? Yeah, I would say that when it comes to storm chasing specifically, um, normally those of us who are you know, going into it full time and basically doing it from, you know, May through August, September, that the mental, the mental load is fine up until you get into those months of July and August where uh, storms become a little bit more sparse. Uh, They're typically up in the high plains areas. So, you know, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, and you might have a day where you're driving you're chasing in the panhandle of Texas and Oklahoma one day. And then the next day you're trying to get up to North Dakota. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard when you have day upon day of driving in a car, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 hours. And then what do you, what do you prepare to do right after you get through storm chasing that day? Well, you got to go to another state to get prepared for the next day, potentially. Um, and that is kind of where the mental strain for me comes in is it's doing it over and over again. But again, for me, it's kind of a passion. So I don't I don't really look at it as a mental strain per se because of it being such a large passion for me. I often take those long hours of driving between target areas as kind of time to, you know, just reflect back on you know, what I may have done wrong during the storm chase or what I have, what I did right. Uh, and then just things in my general life, you know, um, you know, what's going on with my family back in South Carolina, I'll catch up with friends often, that type of deal. So for me, the mental strain isn't as bad as it is with some other chases because, you know, I'm just a guy with, I'm, I'm just a guy that has no kids. I have no, no wife. So I don't have any other responsibilities outside of myself and my mother who I'm taking care of. Um, so that makes it a little bit easier for me. But when you have chases who, you know, they have kids or, you know, they have a family to take care of. They also have a job that they have to go back to. Um, that can get pretty hard, you know, balancing your personal life and your chasing life. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sacrifices that some people have to make to be able to chase that chase the way that they chase. And, and that can be really, really, uh, mentally taxing. Um, a couple of years ago, um, just getting into my personal life here a bit. I, uh, I was dating somebody who I had a crush on for the longest time, the longest time. And, and things were going great with us. But the one thing that, kind of put a dampening on our relationship was the fact that I was going to be going out next year and storm chasing. And this person, they absolutely did not want me to do that. You know, so I tried to compromise, you know, Hey, instead of me doing, you know, two or three months, you know, type of deal, how about I do a week or two Um, or even just a month or, you know, something like that. Let's compromise. And there's just no compromising. Um, with with that it was it was hard because i felt like i had to choose between someone that i love versus something that i love mm. and creatively i was just getting crushed i was i was getting crushed from being at home and not being able to realizing that i was not going to be able to release my creative spirit you know and chase this passion that I love. And I had to, I had to choose. It was either storm chasing and 
you know, being a storm photographer or it was being with the person who is the love of my life. And ultimately I chose to continue on my path of storm chasing and being a photographer and being a travel nurse. Um, and the reason why I did that was because I just really, I could tell that I was already changing inside as a human. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, regardless of if you're a photographer or if you're a painter, if you're a sculptor, you know, anybody who's in any of those kind of artistic settings, you know, it kind of becomes your livelihood. It becomes an outlet for you to, you know, express your feelings in. And that is something that sometimes you, it's hard to talk about, um, even with people that you love. Um, I'm sure you kind of, you kind of know where I'm going with this is that it's, it's something that is so intimate that nothing can really take it away from you. So when you feel like it's being taken away, you know, you go into this completely different realm of, of mentality. And I just knew that for me, as much of a sacrifice as that was at the time, I knew that coming back to my creative passion was, was where I needed to be. Um, so that's where a lot of mental strain comes in is with, with family things, with friends, um, sacrificing important, you know, important activities with kids to go chasing North Dakota, um, you know, sacrificing, you know, family and friends birthdays or, you know, different dates, you know, this and that it's, it can really be taxing in that way. That decision you described choosing between something or someone in, in the moment, how difficult was that for you to make? That was, that was probably the hard, one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to, to make in my life. Um, because at that time, you know, this was somebody who I had known for eight years. Um, we met when I was working at my very first place of employment in South Carolina and you know, just for me and her to have actually connect, we actually connected through photography. I had actually, you know, I was already traveling and doing my thing and, you know, she started seeing some of my photography and, you know, that's how we kind of reconnected. And then that's how eventually my relationship formed. Um, it was really hard to just try to wrap my head around how could the person that I love want to take away something from me that I truly love. And there was a large part of me that felt selfish in making the decision that I did. And not only was it hard for me, but it was hard for her as well, because I think in the back of her mind, you know, she, she could tell that, you know, with things going the way that they were going, I was not going to be myself. And I wasn't, I literally got depressed. I was, just sitting at home. I wasn't talking that much. I was, you know, mentally, I was just in my mind so much, always thinking like, okay, how can I fix this to where I can have both? But, you know, life's not fair. And we can't, we can't always have what we want. You know, we can't, we can't always have our cake and eat it too. Um, so it was very, it was very, very taxing. It was a very difficult moment of my life. And Honestly, even after making that decision and us, you know, being friends for a while afterwards, it was, it was very, very difficult. And it took me a while to actually recover back to where I was. But um, ironically, I think that kind of has helped me in being able to express, express emotion within some of my work. Because when you look at my work, um, you know, oftentimes people are able to connect with it emotionally, which is a very hard thing to do in photography. It's, it's one thing to, to have photography be something that's beautiful and technically perfect, but it's another thing to cross that line to where people can look at your work and they'll say, you know, they'll go from, damn, you know, that looks amazing to, you know, Hey, I feel something with that photograph. And I think going through that sacrifice ultimately kind of helped me be able to release my emotions, how I'm feeling into the photograph. And thus other people are able to connect with it and 
even if they're not, if they're going through, you know, similar things, um, they're able to, they're able to feel what I was feeling, even though it's not exactly what I was going through, if that makes sense. What does that mean to you as the artist hearing people's stories of connection while also being able to resonate with your own story and your own experiences, knowing how you felt when you press the shutter at, you know, one two fiftieth of a second or something like that. You know, I, I absolutely love it because I think it's great for photographers to actually connect with the people who are viewing their work. And I think that's kind of a lost art nowadays. Um, you know, with Instagram, the rise of Instagram, it was so easy to just, you know, you post a picture and you have people commenting on it. You have people validating your work. And that's one thing. But it's it's a whole other thing when you have somebody who, you know, messages you and, you know, they say, you know, hey, thanks for posting this. You know, I can I can feel some of what you were feeling. And then they get into their personal life and you know, because I'll start asking them, okay, well, what's going on in your life? Is everything okay? Because obviously when I, when I took this picture, I knew what I was going through. I know that, you know, I had a lot of um, just mental haziness and not knowing where I was going in life type of deal. Um, And obviously if you're connecting with this picture, there's something that's going on in your life to, to be able to connect with it. So, so let's talk about it. Let's, Let's open up this this dialogue. And what happened for me was being able to connect with these people only helped to cement that I was in the right place as far as doing photography, but I was also able to connect with people on a more intimate and personal level, which is amazing because ultimately when it comes to art, that's what you're wanting to do. You know, um, I think Instagram really and Facebook and Twitter and all of these things really created a disconnect for photographers. But I think it's slowly coming back to where people are able to actually connect with others art and talk about it. And in turn, that kind of leads to friendships and things of that nature. And you're often helping to heal each other without even realizing it. You talk, and I'm really glad this conversation has gone this direction, uh, a direction that I wasn't expecting, honestly. When when you talk about emotion and storm photography, what are the different types of emotions and how can storms display those emotions when you are chasing them, watching them in the field? Because as somebody who like I've, I've done like local storm chases and shot like storms and lightning and stuff like that, but, but nothing to the extent that you're talking about. And the one emotion that I, that I get from those experiences is just like violence, anger. Um, what other ways can storms show different emotions through the way they form and, and how you photograph them? So, like you said, oftentimes when you think of these storms and severe weather, you're thinking, you know, chaos, you're thinking damaging storms that, you know, either destroy cars or destroy property or things of that nature. But sometimes you'll get some storms that are, you know, you just watch them and they'll spin like a top for hours and they're not doing any damage. You know, there may be a little hail with it. There may be a little wind, but they're not damaging property. They're not, you know, producing a tornado to take lives. And it's, it's, it's a weird feeling because as much as your adrenaline is up because you're, you're standing here and you're looking at this, literally looking at a storm going 50,000 feet up in the air. That's literally spinning in front of your eyes, you know, not at a fast pace, but you can see it visibly moving and rotating in front of your eyes. And, as much as your adrenaline is pumping, it's also a very serene feeling. It's, it's, it's this rush of euphoria and just the fact that, you know, hey, I nailed my target position when it came to this storm chase day. And now I have this beautiful supercell that's right in front of me. And, and you have feelings of happiness because you know that you're able to watch the storm and it's not damaging anything. And I think that, um, that oftentimes with those type of storms, um, it just gives me a chance to kind of reflect back 
on my life and, you know, kind of look at how some of the things went in my life. You know, obviously they were kind of the same way. They were, you know, chaos and and things of that nature, you know, destruction mentally. Um, um, to be able to look at where I'm at now and being able to photograph some of these is, is truly a serene and peaceful feeling. Um, also, when I'm out there chasing and, you know, I get into these situations, it's it's as if life as I know it has come to a complete standstill. There's no, there's no, there's no worrying about a bill. There's no worrying about trying to make a sale somewhere or trying to please somebody with a photo. It's just me, maybe a friend and the storm. And that's it. And I think that's one of life's greatest treasures is being able to, to just truly enjoy life and mother nature and seeing the beauty, you know, whether or not it's in something that's serene or in something that's, you know, creating absolute chaos underneath it. Um, being able to pause and really appreciate what what Mother Nature has put in front of you is one of the absolute best feelings. And I wouldn't change that for anything. Again, it's just helped me solidify that, you know, storm chasing is what I want to do for the rest of my life. You know, it's from that moment of seeing that cloud and having that spark just within my soul light to even now, you know, every time I'm out there chasing, it, it never gets old. It never gets to where it's like, you know, hey, you know, I'm tired of doing this 10 hour drive to North Dakota. I'm tired of driving across 70 to Colorado or I-29 up to North Dakota or whatever, you know. Each of those days is truly a blessing for me because I know that I could be doing otherwise. And I know that there are many people out there who just haven't been able to witness Mother Nature in the manner that I have, regardless of if it's storm chasing or, you know, like you, you know, you're you go out hiking often and you're in the Appalachians, you know, shooting. And I'm sure you feel those same type of feelings as well. But ultimately, you know, we're a small section of photographers who get to enjoy this and i think that's a beautiful thing do storms get a bad reputation though uh i think they do and rightfully so because oftentimes when you when you're you know looking at something like the weather channel or you know something that's uh severe weather related comes up on you know cnn cbs abc fox wherever uh, obviously you're going to hear about the bad things you're going to hear about the tornado that's, you know, killed a certain amount of people or the flash flooding that's been created from a hurricane. But I think that with that, you can also see the beautiful side of things. And it's it's a topic that's quite a bit touchy when it comes to storm chasers because it's one thing to photograph a storm and to see a tornado. It's another thing when you see that tornado ripping apart a town and taking, you know, regardless of if it's taking a human life or if it's taking uh, basically a life that somebody has built, you know, with their home, with their cherished memories from growing up as a child. Um, it's something that can be very disturbing. And as storm chasers, we're often required to a report this to the national weather service because this storm may continue to produce tornadoes um so that we can get hopefully they can get an alert out on time to you know help protect other people's lives and you know even though you can't protect property to be able to save a human life because you spotted a tornado and you were able to relay it to the nws and they promptly and swiftly issue a tornado warning is it's, it's a great thing. Um, whether or not people like storm chasers, we're, we're the eyes on the ground for the NWS and being able to help save lives. But in terms of the actual storms themselves, yes, they do get a very bad rap. And one of the things that I try to aspire to do is to show the beautiful side of it without crossing the boundary of uh, stepping on people's toes who have may have been affected by a tornado in the past or, or recently. Um, again, it's a very 
fine line. And I don't know. It's it's kind of a hard situation to be in at times. But when you're out there and you're storm chasing for the right reasons, people people know. And you know, I'm hoping that people can see with my photographs, with my Instagram lives that I do while I'm storm chasing that that you know not only is it about photography for me but it's also about doing the right thing it's almost like you describe it as a paradox and i use that word a lot on this podcast because we're not really chemically designed to understand paradox multiple emotions at the same time but Mm -hmm. you've used two words that are very paradoxical in the same situation of storm chases of sheer euphoria for you but also absolute horror for other people yeah yeah it's again it's something that in the storm chasing community it's 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 something that we often clash with because most storm chasers you know they've they came into it watching you know watching uh, storm documentaries and you know seeing you know someone like reed timmer who's you know they're getting that adrenaline rush from being close to a tornado. And oftentimes, you know, people who are storm chasers have, they've been wanting to do this since they were a kid, you know, especially people from the Midwest who they were able to witness these storms and, you know, as a, as a kid, and it was something that they grew up with. Whereas for me, I grew up in South Carolina, so we do not get the severe storms that the Midwest does usually. Um, it's pretty rare for us to get a tornado. Uh, so it's a very hard thing to deal with at times. I've been blessed in that I haven't had to deal with an actual tornado taking lives while I was chasing. I have seen tornadoes destroy some property, but luckily none has taken a life yet. Um, but it's a very hard thing to deal with. And I think working in surgery has, has helped me to to kind of balance that out because I'm kind of in the same scenario while in surgery, you know, uh, for the most part, surgery is kind of what I got into as being in high school. And I kind of knew that, Hey, I wanted to be in the healthcare field. I knew I didn't want to work as a nurse on the floor and I knew I wanted to help change lives. So surgery was kind of that natural fit for me. And, uh, I've been lucky to do that for 12 hours or not 12 hours, 12 years, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, The great thing about being able to work in a setting where you have to remain calm in times of very high stress, especially when you have a trauma that's life-threatening sitting on the table and you're doing, you know, whatever surgery it is to help save this person's life. And you're oftentimes, you're the calm bridge between the surgeon and the circulator and if you're not calm when you're in that position then the room's not calm and when the room is not calm and the surgeon's freaking out then the chances of that patient living are going to go down because obviously there's chaos going around everywhere um so for me being able to remain calm in those type of settings has actually done wonders for me and also being able to storm chase and be able to remain calm and not let my emotions get the best of me when there is a setting that could be potentially life-threatening and you see it unfolding in your eyes and obviously emotions are high and you're like oh my god there could be a tornado that potentially hits this town um you know seeing seeing that on radar as it approaches a town and knowing that Hey, you know, people could potentially lose their lives can can wreck your emotions very easily. But having that background setting of being in the healthcare field and in surgery has really helped me to kind of tune in and you know kind of put those emotions inside and be able to realize there's a task at hand at the moment and I can deal with my emotions later. I think I would be remiss if we didn't go into like how to chase safely. Um, and, and this has come up. I'm remembering, you know, we had this a little bit of conversation recently as severe storms moved through my area of the States uh, in West Tennessee and up into Western Kentucky. 
um, and, and that destruction. I ask you, you know, why why not chase into that area? And you mentioned it's you know v- much much less safe than chasing out in the Great Plains. And I don't want somebody to listen to this podcast and be like, um, here we go, I'm going to Storm Chase. Um, I think if you lay out, you know, a few of the best safety practices that you can make. Uh, I think that would be really helpful, not only for anybody who wants to look into this kind of photography further, um, but also for just my conscience, I feel like. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I should probably preface this with saying that no matter how safe of a chaser you are, there are always there's going to be a time or two where you're going to get into a predicament Mm -hmm. and it's those times when you get into predicaments where decisions that are made can change the course of your reality. Um, a prime example of this was last year for me. Uh, I was chasing with a friend who uh, she just recently put out a video of us chasing for five days together. And one of those days we caught the a tornado that happened in La Mesa, Texas. Um, this tornado happened because the supercell was moving to the southeast and there was what we call an outflow boundary that basically kick-started a haboob. And that storm and that haboob collided. So when that happened, it helped the supercell produce a brief tornado and we're trying to get out in front of it. Obviously, I've been chasing for a few years now, so I knew I needed to make it through the town before the storm got there, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I wasn't thinking at the time that, hey, there's a haboob, a blinding haboob still coming towards the town. So by the time I'm almost at the edge of the town to get out of it, the haboob hits. And it goes from literally sunny daylight to pitch black in a matter of seconds. Um, I was actually live streaming this and people got scared to death because like they saw the wall of dust and they heard me saying, I don't think we're going to make it. We got to abort. We got to go through the storm and get north of town to get out of here. And then my feet cut out. Um, The reason why my feet cut out was because when we turned back to go north, we literally couldn't see a thing. There was 95 mile per hour wind gust. Um, We had probably pee to dime size hail, luckily. So it wasn't too bad as far as the hail damage was concerned. But there was very high winds, very low visibility. And without me having the proper equipment to see where I was on GPS and then kind of already knowing this town, (laughs) we wouldn't have made it north. Um, Luckily, that storm didn't produce another tornado because we would have been right in the path of it to produce another quick tornado. And you would have literally had zero visibility to to see it because... Again, it was pitch black. Um, so in terms of safety, it's it's very hard to chase safely. Um, I would say if anybody's listening to this and they wanted to chase, I would highly suggest either reaching out to somebody who you know is a storm chaser, which there's many of us out on the Instagram, Facebook, Twitter platforms, uh, maybe deciding to go with a tour company, you know, who has experts out there in that field. Um, the other thing is if you're wanting to really dive into it and, you know, try to figure out how to become a chaser yourself, you know, you could always reach out to people and see if they're willing to give you some, some of their things that they use to study with how the storm chase. Um, but mainly in order to chase safely, you really have to go out and experience it. We can tell you, you know, Hey, you need to always have an escape route. You need to have multiple escape routes. You need to watch out for cars. And it's one thing because there's a lot of chasers out there nowadays. And oftentimes it's not a tornado or a storm that kills you. It's either an animal or another chaser that you can get into an accident with that will kill you. Um, but at the same time, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to witness it. So I highly would suggest just going out with people who have been there before and know what to do when predicaments come up because when they come up, they come up really fast and you have to know where you are, what moves you need to do and how to get out of bad spots. What do you have coming up in the next year 
Um, I know you mentioned to me that you do some workshops. If, if somebody's coming on a workshop with you, like what are they going to get out of it? So if you're coming on a workshop with me, you're going to get a couple of things out of it. Number one, you're going to see how I'm actually out there forecasting the day of. Uh, what I'm looking for in the models, you'll be able to ask questions and, you know, kind of pick my brain as far as that. Um, another thing that you'll be able to see is there's there's different styles of chasing. Um, mine is more photography related because for me, I don't I do not get an adrenaline rush from chasing a tornado up close, being close to a tornado. Whereas other people, that's that's their thing. You know, my thing is seeing cloud structure. Um, you know, being able to photograph some of the baddest supercells in the world. Other people are, how close can I get to that tornado? Um, you know, how much hail damage can I take on my car? Uh, those type of things. So we won't be doing that. We'll be getting cloud structure from afar. Um, but they'll also be able to see kind of my process as to how am I choosing my foregrounds? How do I know where I want to stop on the storm to be able to get the greatest shot of that storm because there's kind of a, there's a little bit of an art to that. Um, you know, positioning yourself on different sides of the storm are going to give you different compositions of the storm. And some are not going to be as strong as others. So it's very important in being able to learn where you want to position yourself at on a storm in order to shoot it. Um, other than that, just good times, obviously, me and you, we both love food, and I've got a list of places across the Midwest that, that I always, anytime I'm near a town, I'll be like, hey, I know a good place, let's go eat here type of deal. So, so they're going to get gonna get a crash, crash food course, so to speak, of the Midwest. Uh, and then other than that, just you know, good hangs with friends. I'm friends with a lot of chasers out in the community, and the great thing is, is that we often hang out before the storm chases. So they may be able to meet several other storm chasers and, you know, be able to make those connections with them as well, which is very important if you're wanting to get into the world of storm chasing. I think the last question I have for you, um, how long did it take you to grow your dreads and <laughs> are you ever going to cut them? Let's see. It's taken me, I think I've been growing them for nine years, four months now. Little okay. over nine did years you, Did you let them form naturally or did you have someone do it for you? So I had a friend make, kind of just make braids out of my hair. Okay. And then I just let it go naturally. Um, nice. I'm half black, half white. And for black people, there's a different way that they can start dreads. And I tried it that way and it just didn't work for me. I, uh, mm -hmm. I ended up getting my dad's jeans instead of my mom's jeans. My mom's <laughs> jeans. So I had to I had to go to the other way of being able to do them. But yeah, I basically started braids. Uh just kind of let them go and then probably a year later is when they actually started looking like dreadlocks. So it's definitely a a patience thing. And then as far as uh whether or not I'm going to cut them, the answer is no. <laughs> I, I don't think the, it's going to happen. The patience thing is something that nobody really thinks about. So I had always wanted them my entire life. Um, finally grew my hair out long enough that I could like start them. And two weeks later, I was like, this looks terrible. And also my head, itches so bad. <laughs> and like I have very oily hair, so it was like just like not connecting right, and it just it was a disaster. And I went home and just shaved my head and felt pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it takes a little bit getting used to. If you've been washing your hair for you know every day for years, obviously when you get dreadlocks, you're you're not going to be doing that. I usually wash mine like once a week. Yeah. Um. So it takes a little bit for your scalp to get used to it. And then as far as the actual process, yeah, the first year that I was growing my dreadlocks, my head looked absolutely horrible. Like, <laughs> it just looked like a matted wad, and then my dreads didn't look like dreads. They just looked like looked like these little flat things on my head. So I ended up wearing a lot of hats and, uh, you know, hats, beanies, things of that nature, just to try to cover them up. So people didn't see me and, you know, think I was just this, you know, dirty hippie type of deal. It's dedication, man. 
it, it really is, man. I call these things my children now. I've had them for <laughs> so long. You know, they're, you know, in terms of relationships or anything, this is probably like the longest I've been with something in my life. It's it's hard to part. I had a friend who had some and he cut them off and was so distraught that he cut them. He made them into coasters that he still uses at his house. You know, it's funny you say that because I trimmed my dreads probably three years ago. They got so long to where they were pulling on my head and I was getting migraines every day. So I had to trim them and I still have those in my uh, <laughs> in my room right now. <laughs> They're like truly my babies, you know? <laughs> well, he's Justin Sneed. Justin, I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing so much about your life, your story, and also your photography. Yeah, I want to thank you for inviting me, especially for this being my first podcast. I know it was a little shaky there in the beginning, but I often don't speak to uh, to either, you know, podcast or you know, Twitter spaces like, you know, a lot of photographers are doing these days. Uh, so it's been a pleasure. And I really appreciate you for being willing to reach out to me and uh, get this going.